When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Who are you? Are you you? These are the questions that British visual artist Chantelle Martin asks with her incredible work. I've been a fan of Chantelle for a long time, and I am so excited to have her on the podcast this week. If you're new to the podcast, this is Sounds Good with Brandon Harvey. I am Brandon, and every single week we host hopeful conversations with people who are changing the world, living lives of intentionality, and filling the world with a little bit more wonder. And oh my goodness, Chantel fits the bill so well. After moving to New York from Tokyo, where she actually got crazy famous for doing a totally new style of art within Japanese clubs, she became known for creating stream of consciousness drawings and light projects with childlike wonder and joy. Her work is mostly made up of lines and sick figures and faces and little words and sayings like, who are you? Are you you? And oh my goodness, it is so inspiring and iconic and wonderful. I'm a huge fan and many other people are too because her work has been shown in museums around the world. In this conversation today, Chantel and I got to have a wonderful talk about understanding who we are, understanding our identities and living into them and continually checking in again and again and saying, am I living up to who I should be? Am I living up to who I already am? And I love it. And by asking these unconventional questions, we are able to keep wonder alive in our lives and in our creativity and all the things that we do. And so without any further ado, let's just jump straight into the conversation. This is the wonderful Chantel Martin and I talking. Here we go. So Chantel, I first saw your work, or at least I'm pretty sure that this was my first time. When I was visiting Nashville, I was dating my now wife long distance. I lived in Portland, Oregon, uh, and I went to what is now my absolute favorite restaurant in Nashville, Rolf and Daughters. Their their pasta is so good. Their Garganelli Verde. Um, and I saw this beautiful artwork all over the wall outside their building. And uh, I started doing some Googling. I was like, who did this amazing work? I love this. And I found you. That's how I came across your work. And I've been a fan ever since. And so now I'm just honored to be talking with you. Yeah, that was my first and only time to, to Nashville. And uh, I'm, I'm really happy that the restaurant is doing well there. And, you know, it's, it's a nice canvas to work with there. Yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. Did you get to eat any of the pasta while you were there? I don't think I did. I, I really need to go back and eat there, um, especially now the restaurant's <laughs> yeah. been around for a couple of years now. I definitely need to go back. Oh my gosh, you're you're seriously going to have to. So that was the very first time that I heard of you. And then I started following you online kind of for the last few years. And then I was in New York out at this Samsung event a few months ago. And you were on stage and you were sharing your story and you were doing live public art. And I got just such an impression of childlike wonder in the work that you do, the way that you just 
I don't know, you, you filled your canvas with so much joy and you had so much creativity that just seemed to be rattling through you as you were creating. And it was really, really fun to see. And it reminded me of this quote that says, the creative adult is the child who has survived. Do you feel like that applies to you? Like, have you been doing art since you were a kid? What does that look like for you? You know, we've all been doing art since we was a kid. Uh, I think the difference is that some of us stop and some of us don't. And um, I definitely love doing the live performances because I'm not a performer, but, you know, if you're in a position where you're drawing live, it keeps you honest and it keeps you vulnerable because it takes away time. And time sometimes is something that allows you to overthink things or allows you to hesitate or it allows you to think too much about what you're doing or it allows you to imitate someone else or it allows you to be let those uh, kind of thoughts creep in that that stop you doing what you're born to do in a way so drawing live keeps me honest it keeps me vulnerable but it also brings out that big kid in me because it's it's just very playful and it's very creative and and as you saw in in that show at the Lincoln Center a question I asked everyone is if you can draw put your hand up and a lot of people didn't put their hand up. And I said, it's crazy. Like, of course you can draw. You did it as a two-year-old and a three-year-old and a four-year-old and a five-year-old and a six-year-old, maybe even a seven, eight, nine-year-old. You can draw. And so it's always fun. And I mean, a lot of the work that you do is line drawings. It's stick figures. You know, that's something that people can do. And I love the way that you kind of lay that out and you create, you say, hey, like you can draw lines too. Yeah, I'm not doing anything new. I'm not inventing the wheel what I'm doing is I'm drawing, but I'm drawing in a way that is uniquely mine. And I lived in Japan for five years and Japan is a very craft-based uh, culture. You know, they, they master things over their lifetime, over generations. And starting my career in, in, in such an environment where you see people take one aspect or one craft or one industry and really try and pursue it and master it made me wonder, you know, what's something that I could master in this lifetime? What's something so simple and profound that I could take and master and it would become mine? And I thought, a line, you know, I love drawing. What if I could master a line and the simplicity of a line and what if that line could then become recognizably mine? And what if that stick figure could become recognizably mine? What if that, you know, that building or that face could become recognizably mine? The, then I've achieved something uh, in, in this lifetime. Mm, I love that. I love that. And I want to dive more into Japan, but I do want to rewind a little bit to talk about what led you to Japan. And I really want to hone in on this idea of like, you know, we all totally were born artists. And we all created art, but that art manifested itself in different ways for a lot of us. So for me, that art really manifested in me in, I think I, I like to write stories. I like to tell stories. I like to, I did a lot of writing. For you, was it more in line with drawing? It was totally in line with drawing. And, and this is something I think about a lot. And I think about it quite often because my gift was so accessible. Even though I didn't come from the environment where it was encouraged, it was accessible because it was in the form of a pen or a pencil or a marker. And these are things that we have around us. 
And, you know, what if you're growing up and you have a gift? We all have a gift, but the application or the tool or the function of that gift isn't accessible to you. It isn't as easy as singing or picking up a pen and drawing or telling your friends jokes or stories. Well, if your gift is in the form of something else, how do you find that? How do you discover that? How do you uh, untap that? And, and, and that's something I do think about a lot. And I do think about how we can encourage people, especially younger people and, and, and even older people to find that gift and to find that tool. And, and because why are we here if it's not to make and share? And, and for a, you know, a few of us, we're very lucky because we've found that thing that we love to make and share. But what if, if that isn't ex- as accessible to you? Hmm. You spend a lot of time these days drawing all over big spaces, big walls and and floors and ceilings. And did you draw a lot on your walls growing up? (laughs) Yeah, I grew on my walls. I got in trouble for it. You know, I drew on my friends, got in trouble for it. I drew on my clothes, (laughs) got in trouble for it. I drew on myself, got in trouble for it. And I really try and encourage, you know, parents now when I when I see them and I, I I learn that their kids draw and I'm like I hope you let them draw on their walls and I hope you let them draw here and I hope you let them draw there because you know we if if your child is doing something consistently it means there's probably a passion involved there and and it's uh it's it's good to encourage those versus to discourage them and and, and take them away and so as that passion evolved at what point did you say I'm gonna actually pursue this I'm gonna actually turn this into something that you know maybe I'll get to do as my job yeah it's it's funny I don't think I've ever actually said that to myself um <laughs> you know growing up I didn't know art was a thing I didn't know that you could be an artist um you know I I, I grew up in southeast London in a place called Thamesmead um you know one of these big kind of council estate slash projects um and so that you know it's a very working class system where you you go to school but you probably don't finish school and then you get a job or you maybe you don't get a job there isn't a lot of expectations and so how can you imagine things outside of a system that isn't imagined for you you know how can you dream up things that you aren't exposed to and going to school at the time it's not like we had smartphones and the internet then when I went to school and, um, you know, now I think that stuff is amazing because you can, you have a bigger window to look out and see what people are up to. And, um, you know, then we only had the library and and I super avoided the library. So I didn't even know these things existed. Um, but what I did know is that I guess my nature was a little bit defiant, but also at the same time, I didn't need to follow people. You know, if you look at the school playground, you have, you know, your cool kids, your sport kids, your nerdy kids, these kids, those kids. And I was kind of that kid that just like, I I liked everyone, spoke to everyone, but was quite happy by myself. And so I think, A, just that kind of being an individual helped me kind of uh, do what I wanted without that peer pressure to fit into any group. And I think also just... When I was younger, I, I discovered that when I wrote or when I drew, it made me feel better. And then put on top of that, I was very good at saying yes to things that I wanted to do. And I was very good at saying no to things that I didn't want to do. And, and you know, you follow that practice through your life where you don't really know what the goal is. You don't know what your career will be. You don't know what the future will be. But every day you wake up and you say, this is yes and this is no, this is yes, this is no, this is yes, this is no, this is a no, this is a no, this is a no. And then one day you wake up and you're an artist and, you know, your job is to fly around the world and draw on things, which uh, sometimes I think is quite absurd. But I'm, I'm extremely fortunate <laughs> and, and happy that that is the case. 
I love that idea of it just being a lot of, you know, you you kind of simplified it down to a point of it's it's saying yes to the things you want to do and saying no to the things you don't want to do. Were there times early on where there were things where you're like, man, I don't want to do that, but I feel like that's the next step, you know, in my career, in my opportunity, you know, because I feel like I get those things in my inbox or in my voicemail all the time where it's like, man, what a cool opportunity, but that actually sounds awful to me. You know, it's like we have that internal compass and it's there for a reason and, you know, we can switch it on or we can switch it off or we can choose to ignore it. And as we all know, and probably yourself included, myself included, is that when it does feel like a no and we go ahead and do with it, it doesn't work out. And, <laughs> and as, you know, as good as it pays or as, as, or as much exposure as it might bring or as, 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 as uh, you know, fun the project might seem, if that internal compass is saying no or like kind of maybe or something's off and then we do it, we all know by experience that we shouldn't have done. And, you know, I think we we need to stop boiling things down to like if if it's good for my career or if it's not good for my career or even if it's outside of my industry you know i i kind of now i'm in this category of the art world and for some reason you know it's art is meant to be quite quite vast and wide and 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 involve imagination and and involve an artist kind of exploring themselves and and any questions that they want to involve but but for some reason, when you work with certain types of industries or mediums, then suddenly it's like it's not art, it's commercial or it's this or it's that. And I think we need to stop thinking about things in that way. You know, it's not about commercial versus fine art versus research. Um, you know, for the most part, it's all the same. It's, a, it's about doing something that feels right, that doing something that you're proud of, doing something to your satisfaction, doing something to the quality that you want to do it, pushing yourself and being able to make something and share something with, with your demographic or a wider demographic that you've not explored before, uh, you know, versus like putting ourselves in boxes. So, you know, I think it's just, it's that simple. It's like, this is a yes, I'll do it. This is a no, I won't do it. That's really good. And it, it, you actually reminded me of this quote from Seth Godin who said that art is anything that's outside of the rule book. And I like that mentality that things that aren't always thought of as art can totally be art because you're exploring new territories, you're trying new things, you're pushing the boundaries of what already exists. Yeah. And even even someone for myself, you know, I think that I'm out of this box and I think that you know, I, I can collaborate with with brands or with museums or with scientists. Yet, that when it comes to something like, oh, I want to make music. Oh, but I'm not a musician. I'm like, wait, like I've just fallen into one of those boxes where we believe that we can't transition industries because you're an architect, you're an artist, you're a musician, you're an actor, you're this, and it's like, no. As long as you bring your full self to what you're doing, and and you mentioned a little bit earlier. I think before we started this, this idea of intention, as long as what you're doing has your full self and good intention behind what you're doing, it works. And you could be a, a musician getting into architecture. You could be a scientist getting into, into art. You could be an actor exploring interior design. It doesn't matter. As long as you bring your full self and good intention behind what you're doing, it works. Are you considering pursuing music? Yeah, I have a gig this Friday, actually. No way, for real? That's incredible. So that's funny. So um, I love playing the keyboard and piano. 
um, I guess this is more of a recent thing, yet I have no training, I have no experience, I don't know what I'm doing, I can't play anything twice. People have offered to teach me stuff and I've said no because uh, I like feeling free when I play the piano. You know, if you teach me a chord, then I can do something wrong. But what I've done now is, you know, for me, the lines on the piano, it, it's the same as when I draw lines. You have to approach them confidently. You can't hesitate. You can't think too much. And you just got to play them with feeling and good intention. And it works. And I've done a couple of shows now. And like I said, I have a gig on Friday and I, it's very spontaneous. It's intuitive. So it means every single show is unique and different because I don't know what I did the first time round. And I'm, I, I think it's kind of refreshing in a way that you don't have to go and rehearse and have this like hit song. I'll never play the same song twice because I don't know actually what I'm playing because I'm playing it in the moment and I'm playing it with feeling and I'm playing it for that crowd and that audience that is in that space at that time. Wow. That's so exciting. That's incredible. I love that you're just like pushing yourself, trying this new thing. It sounds mildly terrifying to be in such a different position, putting yourself outside of, you know, because you're really good at the art that you do and the art that you're known for. So I imagine it's a little bit of a weird feeling to do something that's that could be totally different. It could be received totally differently than the stuff that you know is received well. Yes, but also at the same time, what I realize is that when you when I play it sounds like a drawing and that's because I'm behind it and then I was like oh wow it it doesn't matter what you do as long as you're behind it it's going to look like you it's going to feel like you it's going to smell like you it's going to it's going to taste like you it doesn't matter if you get into cooking or this or that is if you're behind it it, it's going to have your style and your rhythm your character in it and it's just going to come out in a different way and yes it is scary and it's embarrassing as well almost because you feel like a little bit of a fraud uh but then you know it's that that fear or that vulnerability is also what keeps you pushing yourself it what keeps you challenging yourself and i think there's something really important about presenting that on a stage that's amazing i want to bring it back a tiny bit and talk about how did you end up in Japan? Like, what was what was the instigating idea behind being like, I'm going to move from, where you were in London? Yeah. Is that where you were before? I was in so London. So you were in London, you're like, I'm going to go to Japan. Yeah, it was funny. Uh, I went to Campbell College of Arts, and I met my first Japanese friend there, Sakura. And I got interested in Japan and Japanese culture and Japanese movies through, through this friend. And then she invited me, probably in 1999 or 2000 to to come and visit her family in Japan in Saitama and for me that was the furthest place on the planet you know I didn't know what they ate I didn't you know I knew it was a long flight away it's just for me I had not left the country then I'd not traveled really anywhere probably only France which you know from England isn't a big stretch and then I went for the first time I think in 2000 for a holiday and I stayed for a month in Saitama and I remember the first few days just crying my eyes out because what she didn't tell me is that, you know, they lived kind of on the side of a mountain in this wooden house where, you know, the windows and doors aren't locked and there's giant bugs and things flying around. Oh, no. And I'm this city <laughs> kid that grew up like in this, you know, concrete jungle. Um <laughs> And, you know, so it was a huge culture shock and didn't know what I was eating, couldn't speak to anyone, was concerned that, you know, living in, in the mountain with all these insects and bugs and strangers. And 
it, it was really tough, but also it, it, it completely like ripped open my world and, and showed me that there was a lot of other things out there. And then instantly what I really related to, or I really enjoyed going to Japan for the first time is that I noticed that when people would ask me where I was from, I would just say I was from London. And then that was it. I'm like, Oh, you're from London. Okay, great. Whereas me at the time, people were like, oh, what are, you know, going back to London and, and being mixed race is that you can't ever just be yourself. You can't ever just be from London. You know, people like, oh, what are you? Are you this? Are you that? Are you this? Are you that? And you're always having to like explain your like existence and, and where you're from in a way. And it was really nice to go to a place where you're either foreign or you're Japanese, you know, you're Nihonjin or you're Gaijin. And it, the world just seemed a lot easier <laughs> um so I think I was quite taken by that idea and and after that trip I went back kind of every year and and stayed with the family and you know got to explore Tokyo a little bit more and and Japan is definitely one of those places where you're instantly attracted or instantly repelled so after a f- you know a few years later I finished art school uh as you do when you finish art school you're like well now I'm probably going to be unemployed or work in you know retail f- for many more years or something like that because that was my part-time job at the time and I was like well you know rather being in unemployed in London maybe I'll just go to Japan and teach English for six months or a year and that's what I did I, I went to Nagoya first and I taught English for six months and then I quit that job and then moved to Tokyo and and, and eventually kind of switched teaching with making art and became a VJ in Japan and and, and lived there for probably just almost five years. And break down your work as a VJ because I think that you're selling yourself a little bit short because the style of of visualization that you created in Japan seems to have become iconic. And I'm not enough in the art world to say uh, whether that's entirely credited to you, but it seems like what you did was really, really innovative and people really latched onto. Yeah, it's a bit of a past life now. And, and I guess... One one thing I did in Japan was help pioneer, you know, live drawing and illustrations in the club scene. And and when I say VJ, I mean visual jockey. So, you know, doing visuals to DJs, dancers, musicians in these Japanese huge mega clubs or in the more kind of avant-garde venues. And at the time, and even now, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, VJing is, is, is such a huge scene out there. And, and, and typically it you know, there's a couple of guys with, with computers and they're mixing different clips and adding different effects to them. And for me at that time, it just seemed a lot like background, you know, I'd go to these clubs and I love dancing and watching these DJs and they would have these giant screens with these visuals on and the the visuals never moved me or or never really seemed to uh, relate to, to me in any way. And I was like, well, you know, firstly, like clubs are really expensive to get into in Japan. And I love dancing. I'd, I'd like to do this three or four times a week if I could, you know. And um, how, how can I get into clubs without paying? And I was like, oh, I could VJ. So I ended up starting this career as a VJ, but instead of, of, of mixing clips, I would draw. And, and what instantly that did is it took the visuals from the background to the foreground because I could instantly react to the environment and the songs and the words and and the experience in the space and you know if the crowd was like going crazy and shouting woo 
you know, I could write ooh, and zoom that in and zoom that out and move it around. And if there were certain lyrics or words that came into songs, I could write those out and move those around. And, you know, if I saw a friend walk into the venue, I could write their name up. And, and you know, like, you know, if people were swinging their arms around, if, if there was a projector kind of near them, I would swing that around there. And, and I think what it did is it helped create this kind of movement of, of, of bringing visuals in these spaces into the foreground and you know we see a lot now of um of projections interacting with people and and stuff like that and you know and that's kind of what I was doing more than 10 years ago or something now and um and it, it was interesting as well because I also got to beta test um and launch a lot of products um kind of electronically and you have like the Wacom tablets for example and I uh, beta tested their first like Bluetooth tablets and I would take them into the middle of the crowd and be drawing while my drawing is, you know, projected onto these like giant screens. So you'd see me in the middle of the dance floor dancing, drawing on this tablet um, and creating these drawings live in real time. So it was it was definitely like a, a fun past life and, and, you know, the work was very colourful and, um, and, and very digital but also quite zen-like in a way because I would, at the end of my shows, I would close my computer, not save anything, go home because I would say, you know, I want, I want the work to live on in the experience of people that are in this room at this time. I don't need to record it or be precious over it. I just want it to come and experience it. And, and then, you know, now fast forward, I look back and I'm like, oh, damn, I, you know, all this part of my career just doesn't exist because there's no documentation of it. But I'm very... Um, you know, it was a very fun time and, and who really gets to start their career in the club scene of Japan. It was quite fun. That's amazing. I love that artist purity of being like, I don't want to record this. And then in hindsight, it's kind of like, well, it'd be kind of cool, but it probably allowed you to actually create a little bit more freely without that. And I also love, man, I think that some of my favorite people are people with like almost secret successful past lives where they did something incredible and then they started up and did something totally different that's incredible and you know they don't even really they're reluctant to bring up that past thing you know it's it's just such a small role even though for a lot of people it was impactful and meaningful I don't know I think that's a really really cool idea and I think that it speaks to a sense of humility and a sense of adventure and ability to move on and and, you know conquer new ideas yeah totally and and for me it's in the past you know I had this past life of being a big VJ in Japan and doing visuals in front of hundreds of thousands of people and it's interesting because people are like oh do you ever use color and I'm like yeah I had a whole career in Japan where I use color you know uh, and um, it's it, it's sometimes when we we think that what we see is everything you know we think that especially with an artist uh work you know like what they're doing now must be everything and and we never really delve a little bit deeper than the surface Hmm. and I, I think that's a good reminder also that so often we you know we play the comparison game and we're like oh man I wish I could create art like Chantel like I wish that I could just like start drawing like amazing line drawings in black and white but the thing is that you had half a decade of doing this totally different thing that established this whole platform for you to be able to do this and and everybody's got to find their own path forward and I think that knowing a little bit of that backstory helps kind of fight that competitive 
nature that's in our brains, that judgmental jealousy. Yeah. And I, I think there's a few things at play with that, you know, and, um, you know, for example, we don't really share the process of an artist so often. And that's another reason I love drawing live, because if you're drawing live, you're exposing the process. And by exposing the process, you're exposing the work. And we forget that a lot of hard work goes into being very good at your craft. And for still, still, for some reason, we have this romanticized notion that people are just good at what they do. And you know, the more and more you look at or you research into anything, it's like, yeah, maybe someone had an inkling or a gift, but then they've worked at it and they practiced at it and they understood their process and then they worked at that and they practiced that. And I think the more that we expose our process as artists and the more that we kind of share the work behind it, people will see that, oh, like, I've got to work at this and I've got to wake up early and I've got to do this and I've got to do that. And for me, starting my career in Japan was really valuable because I went to a club every night, probably most nights a week for many years, and I drew for hours. And I drew for hours and hours and hours and hours, all very stream of consciousness drawing and, and digital but now you put a pen in my hand and I can just draw and I don't have to think about where I'm drawing or what I'm drawing or how I'm drawing because I put thousands of hours in in the clubs in Japan drawing stream of consciously. When did your work manifest from the work that you were doing in clubs with color to the way more iconic uh, line style drawing that most people associate with you today? So what happened is in 2008, I went to New York for a holiday. And like anyone that goes to New York for a holiday, you're like, wow, I love this place. I'm going to move here. And so I went back to Japan and I kind of set up my life to then move to New York. So early 2000 in New York, I moved uh, early 2009, I moved to New York. And when I got there, kind of naively I thought I could just transition my career that I had in Japan to New York you know I was big in Japan so of course I could just go and be big in New York but when I got to New York I realized that everything that I had in Japan didn't exist in New York you know the clubs didn't exist my fan base didn't exist the cultural expectation for visuals when you go out didn't exist projectors weren't everywhere and I, I really realized like oh wow like I'm going to have to start again. And in, in a way, I de-evolved because when I went to places and when I said, hey, I'm doing this projector thing and, you know, like you put a projector up when the DJ's playing and da 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 uh, At that time, you know, in 2009, it just, people were like, oh, no, we can't put a projector up. It's a fire hazard or we, we don't really do that stuff here or, you know, that's maybe you might find it in Vegas, but you don't find it anywhere else. And it just seemed that something people weren't ready to do. And, and so I de-evolved because I'm not going to not make art. That's what I do. And I, and drawing is, is my thing. So I picked up pens again because it's what I had access to. And also another thing that happened is when I moved to New York is I, I also naively thought that I would just move to New York, you know, do these big club events and get a gallery and sell art and, you know, survive that way. And then when I started to meet with galleries, they would say, oh, okay, we love this work, you know, this very detailed drawing I was doing at the time. Where have you shown? And I'd say, oh, I haven't shown. I just come from the club scene of Japan. <laughs> and they would say, well, thank you, but no thank you. And I quite early on realized that there was this catch-22 with art, whereas if you haven't shown, they won't show you because then you don't have a, a, a set of buyers. And, and also you're not going to not make art because they won't show you art. So I found other ways of making 
But you, but the question you asked about the drawings is um, what happened is I started to pick up pens and I started to draw, but I started to draw at a much smaller scale because that's what I was doing in Japan with with pens. And then I started to draw on my bedroom wall and I started to draw on my shirts and my shoes. Uh, and then slowly, you know, the environment plays a big part of, of the work. And then slowly I started to, to draw bigger and want to use bigger pens. And, and I only started using the thicker lines like you see now in 2013. So it's not been too long. So it's actually all the faces and the thicker lines and like the more, I guess, iconic stuff that people are familiar with. It's something that I've only really been doing for a couple of years. It's just happened at a point where uh, people are getting turned on to my work, so then they think that that is the work. But there's a whole other types of work and bodies of work and and, and other, I guess, mediums and, and, and ways that I like to create work. But what you see now is almost like the flag. You know, it's like the big flag that people pay attention to and that they're able to see from far away. But there is a whole other type of um, drawings and, and mediums that I like to use. That's fascinating. And when did you start? A lot of your work incorporates words and specifically one key phrase that seems like it's it's like a signature phrase for you. Who are you? When did that start getting incorporated into all of these line drawings? Yeah. And, it's, you know, it's interesting. You're like, you know, your work contains words. But it contains lines, and you know we forget that words are made up of lines, and and for me, words and lines, it's the same thing, and I'm not really making that distinction between them. So, as I draw lines subconsciously, I'm drawing words subconsciously, or spontaneously, or intuitively. Some of the words, just as some of the characters and some of the lines are reoccurring, and and some of them are staples that have always been there. And they're usually affected, you know, the words, the characters, the lines are affected by the environment that I'm in or people that I'm around or, or you know, issues or opportunities that come up in my life usually reflect themselves as some kind of element within my drawing. And moving to New York, suddenly this phrase started to appear and it was, who are you? And and this started to appear because I had such a hard time. You know, I had that classic New York struggle when you move there and, you know, you're you're so naive that you think you'll get a job. So you spend all your money before you get there and then you end up on your friend's couch and, you know, you, you don't know how to make money because no one knows who you are. And in New York, if they don't know who you are, they don't care who you are. And everyone's trying to be an artist and people start telling you, well, you should look at this person and look at that person or you should try this and you should try that. And you start to get lost because you, you start to listen to people. And, and, and then this phrase, who are you, started to appear in my work. And I, I think it was because I needed to know that I was being myself and I needed to ask myself that I was being true to myself that day. And, and, and I, I started to write out these phrases, you know, who are you, who are you, who are you, who are you? And I put it on the back of my door, you know, my bedroom door. So before I left my bedroom, before I left the house, I would see these and I would be like, Chantel, are you being you? Are you being true? Are you being yourself? And, and the more that I looked at the, the, this phrase, the more that I noticed that quite simply the first three words or the first three letters are W-A-Y. So then I started to ask myself before I left my bedroom or before I left my house, you know, Chantel, are you finding your way? How are you finding your way? 
And sometimes the question of who are you is quite a daunting one. You know, who am I? Is this about identity? Is it about race? Is it about this? Is it about that? But when we just break it down and we're like, well, wait, today, how are you going to find your way? Okay, you're going to find your way through this language of lines and words and characters and drawings. Okay, I can do that. And, um, and, and, and then it almost feels like, okay, well, I need a destination. And, and then this new phrase appeared up in the work, and that was you are you. And quite simply, the first three letters of that are, you know, Y-A-Y, yay. So you're, the philosophy that, Chantelle, you're just trying to find your way to yay, that's it. And then eventually I got to yay and you're like, wow, like yay is this place of understanding. Yay is this place of celebration. Yay is this place where you kind of know your path and you know your way, but you also understand that there's so much more to be done. There's so much more to understand. There's so much more to find out. So you have to ask that new question. You have to, you have to go back to that old question and ask it in a new way. And, and that's where the phrase R-U-U came around because people are like, well, what does R-U-U mean? And so R-U-U is just an evolution of this original question of who are you and you find in your way to yay, but then you get there and you have so much more to do and you have to start from the beginning and refresh this cycle. So then you ask yourself, R-U-U. Man, I just got goosebumps. I'm over here taking notes. I'm putting black ink on white paper. <laughs> and I'm this makes me so happy. This is so cool. I love that like I just got a breakdown of this thing that, you know, has been meaningful to me in just the way that I'm looking at it. But then hearing the the deeper intentionality behind it and your heart behind it is so, so cool. Okay, so so basically that's like the artistic side of things. That's like the metaphorical side, that's the side of, you know, what everybody can take away. But but what did this look like for you? You know, you move to New York and you're asking yourself, who are you? And you start finding your way at that moment. What did it feel like? You know, what was the way of you finding your way? Like what was going on in your actual world? Yeah, you know, in my actual world, it was quite a struggle. And, and um, you know, I was... Like I said, for the probably the first year and a half when I moved to New York from Japan, I was staying on different friends' couches. And it's very fortunate that if you're an artist, people are more inclined to let you sleep on their couch versus, I guess, being a lawyer or something like that. So I was sleeping on couches. I was kind of bartering here and there for like different foods, uh, you know, for lunches and stuff. Um, and then just trying to figure out how to, to make it as an artist. And, and I moved to New York on an O-1 visa which is like an artist visa and it it meant that I couldn't just go and get a part-time job I actually had to try and make the art thing work so I basically struggled probably for a year and a half and didn't really figure it out and then decided to leave New York but then when I was about to leave I was like well why did you come here in the first place you know and uh, and 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 then you remember like oh wow like I did come to New York for like all these cliche reasons. You know, I came for the people, I came for the energy, I came for the opportunities. And then that's when I realized that, oh, wow, like I've been waiting for someone to give me the opportunities that I worked for myself in Japan. You know, I've been waiting for someone to give me the career that I made for myself in Japan. I've been here waiting for someone to give me uh, a gallery or to give me money or to give me that and to give me this. And once I realized that, I realized that I actually had to go and create my own opportunities. And the only way I could do that is by using what I had access to. 
and stop playing the if game. You know, a, a lot of us will start playing this if game. If I had money, I'd do this. If I had a mentor, I'd do this. If I had an investor, I'd do this. If I had a studio, I'd do this. If I had this, if, 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 you know, you have to, I, I had to, you had to, I had to, you know, we all have to stop with the ifs and, and just break it down to, well, what do I have now? Who do I have access to? What do I have access to? And that's when I just started to call around and be like, hey, I'm an artist. Can I do a show in your space? Or I would ask friends like, hey, I'd love to do some of the work that I did in Japan. Do you have a space? Do you have a space? Do you have a space I can use? And eventually someone said yes. And and then I started to do my own shows and, and invited the very few friends that I knew at the time then. And, you know, did what I knew what to do and, and like these kind of shows I was doing in Japan and and the great thing about New York is that yes there are a lot of artists here but not a lot of artists are actually out there making work so if you go out and find a space and do what you do and you invite people to do it people in New York love to talk about things that are cool and they like to talk about things that they see so if you go out and you create something then they're going to tell someone else and they'll tell someone else and then you do in another event and then they'll tell someone else and and eventually, you know, things started to pick up and people would call me and be like, hey, like I heard that you do this thing, you know, can we hire you for that? So, you know, so things behind the scenes, you know, when I'm writing this kind of like, who are you phrase, uh, for a long time, a year and a half, a uh, very tough. And then and then towards the end of that, when I was just about to give up and then kind of had this this profound moment of knowing why I came, things started to pick up because I started to put the work in. Mm. And do you feel like you were finding your yay at that point? Like, was that what you felt your yay was? Exactly. You get to that moment of yay because you're like, yay, like, this is what I do. And to to create opportunities, you have to make them. And you have to pretty much make them for yourself because no one's going to give you things. No one's going to imagine things for you. No one's really going to care for you. And, you know, maybe they will. But I'm I'm talking about myself at that time in, in New York where you have to just create your own opportunities and do that by using what you have access to, what you can actually reach, what you can actually touch and then branch out from there. Wow. This, this is absolutely beautiful. This seriously, this is making me so happy. Like I've, my notebook is just like filled with like doodles and words and who are you? And I I feel, it feels great. (laughs) And I love learning all of this from you. You know, I want to wrap up this conversation by asking for people who are, who are maybe dealing with the the big question of if, like if only I had this, if only I had that, if I had a mentor, if I had money, if I had this opportunity, what would you recommend to them to fight that if? How can they push back against that so that they can find their way and then find their yay? One of my favorite words is today. What can I do today? You know, who can I call today? What can I show today? And especially if you're trying to do art, it's about making and sharing, making and sharing, making and sharing. Okay, so how can I make my work? If I don't have access to these materials, what materials do I have access to? How can I share my work? If I don't have access to these galleries or X spaces, what do I have access to? Is it my local coffee shop? Is it my living room? Is it a friend's living room? What do I have access to? Because the whole point is if you make it and share it, make it and share it, make it and share it, you involve more people into your world over time. And also another thing that I think I learned over time is that there's no rush. 
there's really, really no rush. And, and you want to take your time. You want to have a long career. And you're going to have a long, successful career because you do things that you're proud of. You're not rushing. You're using what you have access to. You're creating your own opportunities. When things come along, you do the things that feel like they're right. And you don't do the things that feel like they're wrong. And then one day, you're going to wake up and look back and have a very coherent career that you're proud of. That's amazing. I absolutely love that. Focus on what you can do today. And remember that there's no rush. We've got time. We can make these things happen over the course of time. Chantel, thank you seriously so much for this incredible conversation. I'm so glad that we got to talk. I'm I'm like giddy right now. This makes me so happy. And seriously, please do come out to Nashville and and maybe eat pasta with me. Yeah, maybe eat pasta and then maybe I'll do a you know a music show out there somewhere. Yes, perfect. Oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. Well, seriously, thank you so much. Cool, thank you. Oh my goodness, I absolutely love this conversation with Chantel. I am, again, such a huge fan of her, and I loved hearing so much intentionality behind what she does. It's really remarkable. The thing that's really sticking with me after this conversation and the thing that I'm going to be really excited about for a long time is this idea of asking, who are you? I'm going to be asking myself that, and I love that she broke it down even further and said, hey, this is a daunting question. So you can ask yourself something a little bit smaller, like, how will you make your way today? And through that whole process of asking yourself that question, uh, you're finally going to be able to say, you are you. I'm going to be able to say, you are you. I love this so much. It's such an artist thing. But the first letters of each of those words in that three-word phrase are Y-A-Y. You are you, Y-A-Y. And I love that it just spells out yay. That means when you find out who you are, you come to a place of celebration and you're able to say yay. Oh my goodness. If you want to follow Chantel online, you totally should. She's at Chantel underscore Martin on Instagram and Twitter. And you can see more of her work at ChantelMartin.art. I promise you, you're going to love seeing her work. So definitely look it up. While you're already hanging out on the internet, why don't you just go give Good 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 a follow? Good 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 is the company that I started to house Sounds Good, the Good Newsletter, the Good Newspaper, all of these good things. Um, That's so cheesy, but all of these good things that we're trying to bring out to the world for this wonderful community that listens to this podcast. We would love for you to join us online. We're sharing a bunch of people's amazing photos of the good newspaper, which has just started to get to people from the hands of mailmen and women across the world. Oh my goodness. It's so fun to see. You'll have to check us out at good, good, good co on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And all week long, we also share good news stories from around the world. Uh, hopeful and inspiring stories like the people that you are hearing on Sounds Good, but then also, you know, just news, things that are happening in the world that are genuinely amazing. So at Good 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 Co. uh, is where you can do that. We would love to have you. And oh, by the way, our website is goodgoodgood.co. There we go. Easy, easy stuff right there. So I think that's a wrap for this week's episode. I'm so glad we got to have this conversation. Go out and do some good this week, and we'll be back next week with another inspiring conversation with an incredible person. Sound good?